0: Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. It's here, Hurricane Season 2023, and what a great podcast we have for you on our third season opener. We have a who's who from the world of forecasting in the tropics you'll hear from the new National Hurricane Center's director, Michael Brennan.
1: The role as director is a little bigger picture, sort of being out in and in front of our messaging and preparedness, and then also the real-time communication of hazards and storm information
0: to the media, to emergency managers, and other officials during a storm. A chat with premier hurricane forecaster, Dr. Philip Klotzbach out of the University of Colorado on how these long-range forecasts are assembled.
2: Basically, there, there tend to be basically clues in the atmosphere, ocean, system that kind of will tip us off whether the season's going to be above or below normal.
0: Lead storm surge forecaster Jamie Rome tells us how troublesome social media orologists have become in posting misinformation. There
3: has been a massive uptick in non official bad information um, on social media and the web. And if we don't talk about and provide an official voice in that space, it allows the proliferation of all this misinformation and hype.
0: Plus, Dan Brown, senior hurricane specialist and warning coordinator for NHC, talks about the impacts of 2022.
4: There, there was significant impacts, again, from last hurricane season especially the United States, uh, we had Hurricane Fiona that struck uh, Puerto Rico, and then also Hurricane Ian that struck Florida.
0: Before we hear from our great experts, let's hear the forecast. NOAA's forecasting 12 to 17 named systems, out of which 5 to 9 may become hurricanes. Out of that number, 1 to 4 could turn into major storms, or those with winds over 111 miles per hour, or Category 3 and above. The average is 14, 7, and 3. Near typical season, but it only takes one.
5: The best app
0: from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app.
5: Get the latest forecast models.
0: My seven weather blog.
1: And of course, seven's cone on your phone.
5: It's yours free from the Storm
1: Station 7 News.
0: Hurricane season runs from the 1st of June through the end of November. It is a huge job to lead the entire hurricane center. We now chat with Mike Brennan and Dan Brown on Lessons Learned from 2022
5: as the new hurricane season begins we also want to take a look back at the 2022 atlantic hurricane season last year which featured multiple hurricane landfalls in the sunshine state i spoke with the new national hurricane center director dr michael brennan as well as daniel brown who's a senior hurricane specialist also at the center well dr brennan congrats on the new role you've been the hurricane specialist for a few years now and have contributed to our coverage when we needed you the most as a source for information. Now you're the official director of the Hurricane Center. How has your role changed and what vision do you have moving forward?
1: Yeah, well, the, the director role is a little higher, higher level, sort of big picture role. It's not as involved necessarily in the day to day forecasting and operations and running. You know, my, my previous position was branch chief of the hurricane specialist unit. So I was sort of in charge of of all the hurricane forecasters and sort of running the day-to-day operations. The role as director is a little bigger picture, sort of being out in chart and in front of our messaging and preparedness. And then also the real-time communication of hazards and and storm information to the media, to emergency managers and other officials during a storm. So you'll see me on the things like, you know, working with you and the the local media, the national media, just to get the word out. And, you know, and I have a, a role from the international perspective too, as the chair of the uh, the WMORA4 Hurricane Committee, working with all our international partners in the region as the official hurricane forecast center and working with all those Met services to, to keep their folks
5: safe too. The 2022 Atlantic hurricane season featured near normal activity with 14 named storms, eight hurricanes, and two major hurricanes. Did the season pan out as the National Hurricane Center expected it to?
1: Well, you know, every season has its own sort of character. And I, if you remember back to the 2022 hurricane season, it was pretty quiet. Early, actually, even into August, it was very quiet and people started to wonder wow, are we going to have any kind of hurricane season at all? What's going to happen? You know, but you know, September got really busy. We had Ian, we had Fiona, we had other storms, and then we even had Nicole as a hurricane make landfall in Florida in November. So it's a good reminder that you know, hurricane season is you know, June through November, especially for folks in South Florida, we're at risk of hurricane impacts through the entire season. There are other parts. Of the basin where it's a little more seasonal or a little more active early or late, South Florida is at risk the entire season. So it's it's something you want to pay attention to the whole time.
4: You know, I think as far as uh, the season, it was a near-average uh, hurricane season. Uh, I don't think at the Hurricane Center were quite as uh, uh, you know enamored with the the numbers. There there was significant impacts again from last hurricane season especially in the United States. Uh, we had Hurricane Fiona that uh, struck uh, Puerto Rico, and then also Hurricane Ian that struck Florida, again producing significant uh, devastation. And uh, again, it's the last several hurricane seasons, really since about 2016, they've all been very uh, impactful hurricane seasons. And just a reminder that we have to be prepared each and every year.
5: The most impactful storm seemed to have been Hurricane Ian that made landsfall on the southwestern Florida coast in late September. How unusual was this storm and what kinds of damage did it produce?
1: Well I mean I, unfortunately Ian's not all that unusual. I mean certainly the Florida Peninsula has been no stranger to, to major hurricane landfalls. you know we've had multiple category four and five hurricane landfalls in Florida going back to 20, 2017. But you know the damage that Ian produced was extreme from a storm surge perspective. The southwest coast of Florida is exceptionally vulnerable to storm surge. So we had, you know, 10 to 15 feet of inundation above ground level with, you know, destructive wave action on top of that. And if you've seen the pictures from Fort Myers Beach, for example, you had, you know, structures destroyed, homes pushed around, you know, sort of large scale devastation across, you know, across multiple barrier islands there in southwest Florida. There was significant impacts from heavy rainfall across much of the, you know, southern to central to northern portions of the peninsula. Mostly north of the, the the you know sort of metro South Florida region, although we did see some impacts, but especially north of Lake Okeechobee up through central and North Florida, there was you know significant freshwater flooding. There was significant storm surge and coastal erosion along the east coast of Florida, especially north of Cape Canaveral. So Ian had tremendously widespread impacts, and it was the the costliest hurricane in Florida history. With, almost $113 billion worth of damage and, you know, uh, multiple fatalities. We lost 41 people just due to storm surge and Ian alone in Florida.
4: Yeah. You know, it was kind of a fairly typical September hurricane. Again, we, we typically get our strongest storms in that kind of August, September, uh, and October time period. This was something that formed you know, down in the Caribbean Sea, moved across Western Cuba, moved into the Southeastern Gulf of Mexico, and ultimately made that landfall in Southwestern Florida. It was a Category 4 hurricane when it made landfall in Southwest Florida. And I think the big takeaway with this storm, is it was also a large storm, and that large size caused a significant and you know really devastating, catastrophic storm surge, in parts of Southwest Florida. Uh, we had Charlie you know, in that area back in 2004, but it was a much smaller storm. And it just shows you again how each storm is different and how the size of Ian uh, played a big role in those impacts that occurred in that area.
5: There is a strange low in activity during the month of August, which tends to be one of the more busier months for tropical cyclone activity. Can you explain what may have caused that and how the warm, undisrupted waters could have allowed for stronger storms?
1: Yeah, there are some parts of the Atlantic Basin where the warm water is not very deep. And so if you have Several storms go through. It can sort of mix that up. But the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico and you know the immediate east coast of Florida and the Bahamas, it doesn't really matter. The warm, warm water there is very deep for the most part. There's features like the loop current that come out of the Gulf and the Northwest Caribbean has very, very deep warm water. So it's not as big of a factor there. We did see a lot of sort of dry air and and other unfavorable factors sort of persist in the Atlantic Basin most of the way through August. But again, those conditions can change pretty quickly. It doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a lot of space or time for a system to be able to find the right environment to be able to intensify it. And that's unfortunately what we saw happen as we got into September. We had a pretty significant outbreak of relatively impactful storms, including Ian.
4: Yeah, you know, it's not it's not too unusual to have kind of a slower start to the hurricane season, but last year was a bit more atypical in that we went that uh, really the entire month of August without uh, a named storm, uh, but it does show you that once we got started with that season that again September October were quite busy and then we ended up with Nicole here in Florida all the way in November. So again, you got to kind of be ready that entire uh, stretch of the hurricane season. But uh, again, usually in the early part of the season, uh, we kind of average one to two storms in about the month of June, but those can be close to home for us here in Florida. We get into July, sometimes there is a little bit of a lull in activity uh, in July, but then the the season typically starts to ramp up in August. That's when those conditions become most favorable, you know, with the warmer sea surface temperatures and also the lower wind shear across uh, uh, much of the Atlantic Basin.
5: Many U.S. states avoided landfalling tropical cyclones, most notably those along the Gulf of Mexico besides Florida. Is there any reasoning for that or was it just luck?
1: Yeah, it's usually just the steering patterns at the time. I mean, as you know, the Gulf Coast states, you know, from Florida all the way over to Texas have had very, very busy hurricane seasons. Prior to 2022, the state of Louisiana has had multiple hurricane landfalls and multiple major hurricane landfalls in 2020 and 2021. So, You know, a lot of it has to do with where the storms form, what the atmospheric steering patterns are like at the time. You know, one thing we've seen in the last few years is a lot of storms forming in the western part of the basin, which makes it more likely that they're going to end up affecting land if they form in the Caribbean or the Gulf. You know, the land is very close by. It also means a really short timeline potentially between when a system forms and when it does reach land.
4: I think, you know, it's, again, difficult to know where the storms are going to move before the season, you know, kind of luck on where they end up going. And in, in, in southeastern Florida, where I live, it's, you know, we've been pretty, pretty lucky now for for several hurricane seasons. The Gulf Coast in general has not been. There's been a lot of uh, even category four and five storms the last many years with you know, Harvey and Laura and, and, and Irma. And last year, Ian and Ida uh, the year before. So, again, a lot of uh, very impactful storms along the Gulf Coast. You know, for those of us in southeast Florida, I think uh, uh, we just have to uh, say, you know, we've been pretty lucky. Uh, but it doesn't mean we won't get hit this year. Unfortunately, uh, you know, we've got to be prepared each and every hurricane season. I uh, have a home in south Florida. And uh, I have to make those preparations and the calendar is getting pretty, pretty uh, close to June 1st. So I really need to do that as well. And that's, you know, get my supplies to just make sure I know where my family is going to ride out the storm and what we need to do to get ready.
5: What were some of the forecasting and communication lessons you learned following the season?
1: We are looking at how the cone might evolve in the next few years, whether it should be something that's more hazard based or whether it should try to capture more of the forecast uncertainty. But we're going to work with the social science community and figure out how to best depict that information going forward. You know, the cone graphics been around for you know, 20 plus years. It's pretty institutionalized. People are very used to it. It is very heavily used but people have to use it the right way. It's just a high level look at where the center of the system is likely to go over the next few days, but it, it really can't tell you more than that. It's just sort of a, an over, like the cover of a book. It's it's sort of a high level look. And then you have to sort of dig into the details to know what the exact risks of the various hazards are going to be at your location.
4: And I think uh, one of the biggest takeaways is to, you know, not focus too much on storm specifics. It's, you know, we look at Ian. you know, don't focus on the exact forecast track. Don't focus precisely on that intensity, but remember what the hazards are going to be. Know know where there's, uh, you know, look for when there's going to be a wind, storm surge, heavy rainfall. For folks that live near the coast, uh, know if you live in an evacuation zone. Find out, do that today before June 1st. Find out if you really need to evacuate ahead of a storm. And uh, those are things that you can do now uh, to make that, uh, take that stress away whenever there's a hurricane threatening. We also have to remember the older population. You know, if you have an older family member, uh, neighbors, you know, make sure they're okay, both before, during, and after a storm. We're losing so many uh, folks after the storm from uh, things like heat exhaustion, heart attacks, you know, accidents that occur during that recovery phase. So again, check on those uh, older neighbors and, and just make sure that everyone is staying safe before, during, and after.
5: Do you expect to make any changes to the forecast code of uncertainty in the future?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think
4: the biggest lesson
1: is it's it's really always about the hazards, and it's not about the track forecast and how it might be shifting around or what the exact intensity forecast is. You know, we knew from very early on that Ian was going to be at or near major hurricane intensity threatening the west coast of Florida. That was clear from the very first forecast. We also know that the storm surge vulnerability the florida west coast is is extreme so we were able to highlight the fact that there was likely to be life-threatening storm surge from the very beginning along the portions of the florida west coast we didn't know exactly where that was going to occur but there was certainly a broad risk even early on and i think we just need as a community the the weather service the hurricane center emergency managers the media need to focus again on the hazards we have watches and warnings for hurricane force winds for storm surge for flooding rainfall flooding and get away from sort of overanalyzing individual model trends and, and how the official forecast may be shifting around a little bit from one cycle to the next?
4: Right now, you know, we we always look at uh, new social science and always trying to improve our products and services. We've really come a long way over the past couple of decades with, with new products that provide probabilistic information about where the, the threats of wind are going to be, how high the storm surge could be, how far inland it could penetrate. We've added uh, things like storm surge watches and warnings to help communicate that hazard. So we're always looking at ways to make improvements, and I'm sure we will in the future. But again, the, the big thing to remember is that that cone doesn't tell you where the impacts are going to occur. It's only telling you where that center of the storm is going to track. And we really do have to look at uh, you know, other products that we issue and also listen to your local media, uh, again, to find out what those impacts might be in your area and what you really need to do to uh, prepare for that storm. And is there anything else you would like to add? I think I just
1: encourage everybody in South Florida as we head toward the
4: season to know your risk. Know
1: if you live in a storm surge evacuation zone. That's the most important piece of information you can know. Because if you do, you may be asked to leave your home in the face of a storm. So you want to know where you're going to go, how you're going to get there. Try to evacuate tens of miles, not hundreds of miles. I know there's a lot of perception in Florida that people have to drive a really long way to get to a safe place ahead of a storm. And that's not necessarily the case. The other thing I'll touch on is, you know, in the last 10 years, we've lost almost as many people after hurricanes to various hazards as we do during the storm. A lot of these are related to medical issues, accidents, power problems, heat-related fatalities. So we want people to be safe after the hurricane, as well as during the storm.
0: Thanks, Jackson. Here's a quick listen at the storm names in place for 2023. Arlene, Brett, Cindy, Don, Emily, Franklin, Gert, Harold, Idalia, Jose, Katya, Lee, Margo, Nigel, Ophelia, Philip, Rena, Sean, Tammy, Vince, and Whitney. Weather or not returns after this. Severe weather can strike any time, and when it does, seven's got you covered. We'll see storms developing. We have a long line of rainfall here. We are the Storm Station 7 News. Welcome back. We all hear a lot of hurricane forecasts this time of year, all meant to give us an idea, never set in stone, as to how active a season might be. But how are these forecasts put together? Dr. Philip Klotzbach reveals the process they use, We spoke to him at the convention floor at this year's National Hurricane Center's conference back in April. Dr. Klotzbach, one of the many questions that that we get asked over at Channel 7 is, what tools do you use to get these long-term forecasts issued?
2: Yeah, so what we do is we use historical weather and climate data, so... Basically, there, there tend to be basically clues in the atmosphere ocean system that kind of will tip us off whether the season is going to be above or below normal. So if you look historically, in general, before active seasons, the Atlantic tends to be warmer, which makes sense since warm ocean water provides more fuel for, de- for developing hurricanes. Also, you tend to have La Nina conditions in the tropical Pacific. Colder water in the tropical Pacific tends to lead towards more conducive conditions in the Atlantic in terms of wind patterns. You tend to get less of this wind shear, too much shear. Is detrimental for hurricane formation and intensification.
0: And then how do you verify these forecasts in the long term?
2: Yeah, so basically every year we put out a forecast for numbers and then we just compare them with what the National Hurricane Center says. This year will be actually be our 40th year of issuing these forecasts. So we actually have real-time forecast verifications going back really far. Um, And so in general, the forecasts in April show kind of modest skill because you're still a long way from when the season really ramps up. June, the skill improves, and by early August, you get you get generally a pretty good skill. Um, it's important to realize that even though August is two months into the hurricane season, first of all, you still about ninety five percent of your major hurricane activity left to go.
0: Now, looking at this year, what are the factors that are in play that you're looking at for the upcoming hurricane season? Yeah, so, if, um, and one of the big things we're monitoring right now is will we get to El Nino
2: or not. A lot of the models are really aggressive, are calling for El Nino. There's indications we might get there, but. We've seen this before where it tries to go to El Nino and it doesn't really end up panning out. So at this point, you know, I would say odds favor in El Nino. But even if we do get there, how strong is it? The Atlantic right now is pretty warm, the eastern and central tropical Atlantic. So it's kind of a tug of war between those two factors.
0: So as we look ahead in time, we have the emergence of El Nino. What are your thoughts on climate change having any impact whatsoever and what we can expect? Yeah, well, climate change in general, if you look like at global storm
2: activity we don't really see an increase we actually have seen a decrease in global hurricane activity and the reason being is that while the Atlantic has been going up the Pacific has generally been going down. Since the Pacific is a larger ocean it actually knocks down your overall numbers and the reason why that's the case is because This year notwithstanding, we've actually trended more towards La Nina the last 40 years. La Nina increases your Atlantic storms, knocks down your Pacific storms. As the Pacific generates more storms, your numbers actually go down. So the Atlantic kind of goes opposite of the rest of the globe. Now this year, if we do get to a robust El Nino, globally we'll probably actually have a very busy season, but the Atlantic should actually have lower than numbers.
0: So as we uh, look ahead here in time, what do you think is the best thing for viewers or, or, or our listening audience to take in now is it more preparations is it more long-term forecasts? what in your view is the most important thing
2: yeah well I mean it's important to realize with seasonal forecasts are certainly not they're certainly not perfect I mean there's years where we forecast a lot we don't get many or vice versa Um, and even if we have a perfect forecast we can't say where the storms are going to go so while in general more active seasons do have more landfalls you can still, in a very quiet season, get one or more nasty landfalls. In Florida, Hurricane Andrew in 92 is a great example. However, again, in general, busier seasons do have more landfall. and storms, the odds of landfall go up in La Niña's down in El Niño, so that is it that is an important factor. But in general, you know, now's the time to be prepared, have a plan in place. One
0: of the things that you were mentioning is that obviously hurricane season doesn't start to pick up until August. Mm-hmm. We've also been seeing a trend for a lot of activity later in the season. Do you see that more as a continuing phenomenon as we move ahead? Yeah, well
2: typically La Niña tends to actually increase late season activity because what kind of what kills your late season is too much shear and in La Nina you tend to have lower shear um, so you can extend your season. So typically if it is in El Nino that should tend to make a season earlier um, but again remains to be seen if we get to El Nino and
0: you still can get late season stuff in El Nino years just in general the odds do go down. Dr. Crossback, thank you for taking the time. A big issue impacting the entire meteorological field is the potential for anyone to post hurricane info on social media. It's become a major problem for forecasters and official sites like the National Hurricane Center. Jamie Rome is here now and telling us how they are trying to tackle this problem. Jamie, can you tell us more or less what we learned from last year's hurricane season?
3: Yeah, it was another example of the overemphasis on the cone. I think so we need to take time to explain what the infamous track cone or cone of uncertainty or it's got many names um it, it is only telling you the probable track of the center the center of the storm and the hazards increasingly so i might say are extending outside of the cone well outside of the cone so we really need people to not necessarily ignore the cone but to um you know, I, I, I refer to the cone as like the, um, you know, the, the table of contents. You right. know, you brief at it quick,
0: you look at it quickly, but then you have to move on to the full story. And one of the things that we did last year at our station was we, we got rid of the icon and the center line of the cone. Uh, one of the comments that I received was, well, the National Hurricane Center is still showing it on its graphics. Right. Do you have any plans in the future to uh, maybe alter that or take that icon out?
3: It's one of many things that are are on the table as we look towards um, what I would call iterations of the cone. So the cone's not going away, and there's not going to be a dramatic uh, change in the cone, but there could be some cosmetic uh, improvements to the cone. Right now, we de-emphasize the center track line. So by default, it is off, and the person has to manually turn it on. Um, But as we look forward in time, um, we're we're thinking about better ways to help prevent people from – their eye visually focusing on the center of the cone. So what happens is when you take the track off, the eye still mentally focuses on the center of, of the cone. Um, and I think there's some visual
0: things we can do to help with that. Now for us in the media, for example, what can we do on our end to help our audience better understand the cone? Is there anything that we should emphasize?
3: Yeah, what, a simple trick, and I think I saw you do this a couple times, is to overlay the hazards on the cone. Um, so um, you keep the cone sort of static and then you animate the different hazards on top of it. So storm surge, rainfall, wind. And you know we've got different products that you can pull into the visualization software to, to help with that. And then you saw me doing that too in um, the, the live uh, videos that we yes. were doing. We would, we would have the cone there. We're not taking the cone away because it's still a valuable tool but to use it sort of as as an anchor to talk about the other hazards and to sort of animate through
0: those other hazards. Now I know that you are extending now the uh, tropical outlook from five to seven days. Um, What is going to be the benefit of that? I mean, sometimes what we hear is that you guys are telling us things way too far in advance, right? What is going to be the benefit of a seven day?
3: Um, there has been a massive uptick in non-official bad information um, on social media and the web. And if we don't talk about and provide an official voice in that space, it allows the proliferation of all this misinformation and hype. So we really think that it'll, it'll snap the, the communication and focus on you know, a, a more uh, fact-forward Right. approach versus people speculating about models and this and that and getting people really really scared. So what happens in these cases is all that speculation and hype uh, wears people out that by the time the the real forecast comes out they're saturated and exhausted and unable to consume that, that new information. So we think it'll help sort of level set the um, communication at days five through seven, which right now is the, the area that is most ripe with misinformation, and, and help imp- create a, a more organized uh, cadence, like a, a more systematic march up the hill, if you will. Will there ever be a forecast cone out to seven days? It could be, we're testing it internally right now. The challenge isn't the forecast itself, but the communication. Thereof, because the, you you know, the cone naturally expands with each day. So if you add two days to it, it expands quite a bit. Um, and, and how do you communicate that, this big broad? I mean, you could have a cone that could sweep from you know, Galveston over to the panhandle of Florida. And how do you communicate that? Um, we're still working with social scientists uh, on how to communicate that extension
0: of the forecast information without confusing or scaring people. Now, obviously, uh, looking ahead, uh, the forecast for the 2023 tropical season, outside of the numbers, we know that it only takes one. Now, this year, we're looking at uh, El Nino coming into play. What kind of an impact do you think that will have on our tropical season? Well, typically, and, you know, it seems like
3: weather is no longer typical, but right. typically yeah. it would, vo- it would uh, create a suppression of the of hurricanes over the entire Atlantic, okay. so it's not not stop them per se, or not stop one from hitting a given area, but suppress the total numbers uh, that might occur across the entire Atlantic uh, basin. The problem with that is it creates an illusion of you know people attribute less activity to less risk, and you know that's that's not what we want people to think in, in El Nino there have been some infamous seasons here in South Florida where we'd be calm over the course of the entire basin and and then we would get smacked with a direct landfall. So, yeah, I I wouldn't pop the champagne on an an El Nino because um, you know, it it has to materialize through the season to to um manifest those that suppression and then you can get a one or two week window in the season where even if the the season as a whole is is hostile to hurricanes, you get one or two weeks, and one just sneaks right in that crack Dude. and 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 hits you. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't. That's always been a huge challenge. And how do we how do we tell people to not attribute the overall activity with risk? Um, and, and it's a natural human instinct to do that. But I got to tell you, I'm going to pull my generator out just like I do every <laughs> year. Um, I'm gonna make sure the shutter bolts are where I can find them. Um, you, you know, I've got accordion shutters and they stiffen up from, if you don't use them. So, you know, once a year I have to go out and kind of like make sure they're lubricated and ready to go. And I do that every year, whether they say owning you or not.
0: Now, one of the main issues for South Florida, obviously with sea level rise, when a hurricane comes through with a storm surge and that's gonna be more of a concern as we're going through time how is the national hurricane center now uh, going to deal with those issues aside from wind and, right. and rain is that storm surge how do we communicate that to folks uh so that they can understand
3: yeah so the forecast part um you know rest assured when we run our storm surge model we initialize it with the water level right now so if there's any if there's any sea level rise that has occurred over whatever span of time we we always start from that. So our our predictions will always have, um, even though sea level rise relatively slow, we'll still have that um, component in there. But I think your point was with storm surge becoming more impactful with sea level rise, which is absolutely true, um, how do we help communities focus more on on storm surge? And um, we have to start treating the storm surge warning analogous to a hurricane warning. Mm -hmm. So people hear hurricane warning, it's kind of like that's severe. You know, I'm going to put up my shutters now. I'm going to do. I'm going to take it serious now. That you don't get that same reaction from a storm surge warning. So somehow we have to elevate the storm surge warning to be in line
0: with the hurricane. Uh, Jamie, thank you very much for your time. This was wonderful, and I hope we don't get to see much of you. In the hurricane season. We're here. I hear your voice in
3: my. Uh, in my left have, here.
0: Baby. Whether or not, we'll be right back.
1: When the tropics heat up, you can stay cool. Because the chief works right here. Seven's chief meteorologist, Bill Farrow. He's been doing this for nearly 30 years.
0: As soon as we get information, we bring it to you instantly. Wilma, Katrina, Irma, he guided
1: us safely through them all.
2: That guy never sleeps, but that's so you can sleep easier.
0: And now, a Bill Fatt. Hurricane season is a man-made timeline. Storms can develop at any time. NHC determined that January of this year, there was a subtropical storm that organized just offshore the northeast coast. Storms need at least 80 degrees of water temperature in order to grow and strengthen, usually between June and December. But if those temps remain warm, storms can pop up at any time. See you next week. This has been Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell. This podcast is produced by the Seven Weather Team. Original music by Chris Crane with technical support by Steven Sejas. Thank you for listening to Whether or Not. <laughs>